of Friedrich Myconius. Well, in 1540, Myconius became sick and was expected to die shortly. On his deathbed, he wrote a, a tender farewell message to Luther, and when Luther read the message, he immediately sent this reply. I command you in the name of God to live, because I still have need of you in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that you are dead, but will permit you to survive me. For this I am praying, this is my will, and may my will be done, because I seek only to glorify the name of God. Myconius, who had already lost the ability to speak when Luther's reply came, soon recovered from his illness, and he lived for six more years. In fact, he actually died two months after Luther did. I share that because I think that's just an amazing testimony of the power of prayer. And my guess is that most of us would probably want to be able to pray like that. It would be really, really cool to pray like that, to be able to pray like that. And I, I have to confess that I don't pray like that. I don't pray with that kind of confidence and that kind of faith. And, and my guess, and, and this, is, this is just a guess, but I imagine a lot of us, maybe most of us, don't pray like that. But the, but the reality is, is that I do believe that we could. Why not? Why couldn't we pray that way? I think we don't pray like that for a few reasons, and, and there could be more than this for sure, but a few of the reasons I thought of were, first of all, I, I think we don't pray like that because we don't have enough faith, or probably a better way to state it would be that we don't think we have enough faith. Secondly, I think we don't pray like that because our understanding of the power of prayer is rather feeble and anemic. And thirdly, I think this is the most important one. I think we don't pray like that because our concept of God and his power is much too small. Now, we may not pray powerful prayers like Luther did yet, but we certainly could. And the question is, how? How can we pray prayers that are powerful? Well, this morning we're going to be in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, and I want to wrestle with that question. How can we pray powerful prayers? And as we read Paul's words in Ephesians 3, I believe he lays out really a pattern of powerful prayer for us. And as you turn to Ephesians 3, if, if you have a Bible with you, awesome. If you don't, there should be one there in the, in the back of the pew in front of you. As you're turning there, I want to set the context for this passage. Um, kind of typical, in, in typical Pauline fashion, he, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, speaks about what is true. And he speaks a lot in the indicative uh, saying, this is who you are. So he, in, in Ephesians, he specifically is teaching them about the positional unity that they have as the church in Christ. And then in chapters 4 through 6, like I said, it, it, he usually begins with the indicative and then he moves in the second half of his epistles to the imperative. Okay, this is true about you, so live this way. Do this. Act in this way. And in chapters 4 through 6, he turns his attention to the 
practical unity of the church. So in 1 through 3, it's about their positional unity in Christ. 4 through 6, the practical unity. In between there, at the end of chapter 3, where we're going to be today, he actually prays for them. So in between, you know, before he moves from the positional to the practical, he prays for them. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I believe as we look at these verses, we will see that Paul gives us a pattern of powerful prayer. But I want to pray real quick before we read the word together. Pray with me. Father, I thank you that you give us the opportunity week in and week out to gather here together to worship you, to sing praises to you, but also I I thank you that we get to gather to read your word together. And it says in your word, Lord, that where two or or more are gathered, your spirit is there with them, and we believe that. And we, we claim that today, God, and we just ask that your spirit would have its way with this time that we have in your word today. We pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that you would communicate who you are to us today, God. We, we want to know you, and we ask that you would come and meet with us today. Would you shine your light on us in this time? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at Ephesians three fourteen through 21. If you would, turn there with me. We're going to be look at the first two verses, and then we'll We'll take a break and and kind of talk through it. So in, in verse 14, it says this, Paul writing, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So as Paul jumps into these verses and, and begins to answer the question that we are wrestling with, this how can we pray powerful prayers, he starts by answering another more specific question. And I believe that question is this. How should we approach God? How should we approach God? If you want to follow along with the bulletin, there's one on the back side of the, uh, the bulletin. There's an outline there, and that's the first question. How should we approach God? And he sa- starts in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees. So Paul takes a, a particular posture in prayer. He bows his knee. Now, in, Jer- in Jewish and early Christian cultures, it was actually much more common to stand while praying. That was the, the normal way to pray, was to stand. But they also knelt sometimes. Kneeling was not uncommon. And what we want to really grab a hold of here is that kneeling actually signifies something. It signifies two things at least, and that would be it signifies reverence and submission. Reverence and submission. If you think about it, when people are in the presence of someone who is great, kind of throughout history, somebody would go into the presence of a king, they would kneel or they would bow. And it also, so it's out of reverence for that king. And it would also be out of submission, understanding that you are under their authority. And so Paul chooses to not just pray in his heart with a particular posture, but also to actually let that dictate his very position, his very, very physical posture. And so, why would he kneel before the Father? Well, that that seems pretty self-explanatory, but I want to look at this. It says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, and then look at verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Okay, now at first glance you might think, well, okay, so God named us, that's that's cool, What, what, what significance is there to that? Well, naming 
is actually more than just giving us a label, more than just calling us man or woman. If you think back to the, to the garden, God gave Adam authority over all of the animals, and so he named them. He said, you're going to be my representative on the earth, and as my representative, I want you to name the animals. So when God named, uh, when God named us, that is significantly teaching us that it is about his authority over us. And it also has the idea that he is also our, the one who has brought us into existence. He is our creator God, our almighty father. And so it says there that he is the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And so in heaven refers to the spiritual beings, the angels, and on earth refers to humanity. So this God that he bows before, he recognizes is not just the God of him, but the God of all people and the God of all created beings. And so Paul takes a posture of reverence and submission, and I believe that that is something that if we want to pray prayers that are powerful, it begins with having a posture in our hearts that often, if not most of the time, bleeds over into our posture physically. I think it is helpful for us to practice with our bodies what God is asking us to do with our hearts. It kind of puts us in line with understanding that God is much greater than us. So a posture of reverence and submission. Now we're going to look at verses 16 through 19, and Paul will move into a, another question. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So look with me at verse 16. This is where Paul begins the content of his prayer. So he starts by saying who he's praying to, and then now he moves into what he's praying for. Okay, so it says in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, that's a really, really long sentence with a lot of stuff, so we've got quite a bit to unpack. But I believe Paul is, is asking and answering really another specific question. So he began, we began teaching us how we should approach God, and then in these verses, what he begins to teach us is what we should ask from God, what we should ask from God. And he gives us really, I, I think you could group all of those things, all those many powerful things that he just said into three groups, and I would say that they are three separate experiences. And the first one is this. Paul prays that they would experience the power and presence of Christ. And so the thing that we should ask for is the power and presence of Christ. If you look at verse 16 in the first half of 17, he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Paul, if you can imagine, or you kind of, kind of think back to who Paul was and kind of his life story, Paul had lived quite a bit of life. And he had experienced quite a bit of hardship. Um, the Bible talks about how he was, you know, had people trying to kill him. He was beaten. Uh, get, he received the 40 lashes minus one, which 
they thought that if they lashed somebody 40 times, that would kill them. So he had received the worst form of a beating uh, multiple times. He had been shipwrecked. He had been snake bitten. There was all these things you can read about in, in the New Testament about Paul and what he had experienced. And if you remember, he's actually writing this letter from jail, from prison in Rome. And so it's interesting to, to kind of think about what Paul's requests are in light of the life that he had lived. And I think what I really see in this is that Paul had lived enough life that he had come to understand that as people, what we typically want and what we typically pray for is our circumstances to change. Our circumstances to change. But what Paul had come to know through seeing God be faithful to him in the midst of all of his hardships is this. While we want our circumstances to change, what we really need is inner spiritual strength. We need God to change our character, not our circumstances. And so that's why he goes into this. And, and you look there, it says that according to the riches of his glory. So he's asking God that in accordance with all that he is and all that he has, with only the kind of power and, and the kind of resources that he has, that he would grant them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in, your, in their inner being, in your inner being. And so the idea here is that he's wanting them to experience the Spirit's work in their lives, that the Spirit would come in and move and change them and move them from people who are doubtful and scared and full of fear and full of all kinds of unbelief to people who are full of faith and full of boldness and confidence. And he's asking that what God would do is come in in his Spirit and kind of clean shop so that it would be a place that Christ could dwell. And that's why he says that. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So he wants to move them from people who are full of doubt to people who are full of faith, people who have experienced the Spirit's work. And so Paul is asking first that they would experience Christ's power, but he's asking that so that they can experience Christ's presence. And so those are the things that he's asking for, Christ's power and Christ's presence. Now, if you think about it, it seems kind of strange on one level that Paul would ask that they would experience Christ's presence, that he would ask that Christ would dwell in them, because if they were believers in Jesus, wasn't Christ already dwelling in them by the Spirit? I mean, you sh that question should come to mind here. Well, what, what is helpful and, and what really helps us understand why Paul would ask this is that there are really two different words that Paul could have used when he said dwell in verse 17. And one of those means to inhabit a place as a guest. Kind of like you and I, when we go on vacation and we stay in a hotel, we inhabit or we dwell there temporarily. That's one way that he could have, could have asked that prayer. He could have used that, that word. But he didn't do that. He actually used a different word that's a much stronger word that has the idea of taking up permanent residence to really settle down. And so the way that this made sense to me as I was looking at this this week is it's really easy for me to think of the difference between a temporary dwelling and a more permanent dwelling because when I go to a hotel, I kind of treat the place kind of like, uh, you know, so what? Don't, I don't really care that much about you know, how clean I leave it because I know that it's not my house and I'm leaving. But when 
I am at my own place, especially right now, as we have just bought our own house, we are like completely taking all the time in the world right now before this baby gets here to really settle down and make it fit for us as a family. So we've been painting this week. Actually, we didn't paint, we paid somebody to paint, which by the way is one of the smartest decisions I've ever made. <laughs> I watched these guys work their tails off. They were supposed to be there for two days and they were there for three and a half, which made me think I probably would have been doing it for two months. But, uh, you know, you would never go into a hotel and be like, hey, we need to paint the walls and stop everything you're doing, go out to the store, buy a bunch of paint and paint the walls, because you don't intend on dwelling there. You don't intend on staying there. But your house, you'll rip up the carpet, you'll lay down hardwood floors, you'll paint the walls because you intend on dwelling there. And that's the difference. He's saying, okay, maybe it is true that Christ is in you because of your faith in him, but what I'm praying for you is that you really would be a place that is fit for him to dwell. And in order for that to be true, the Spirit's got to come in there and clean up. The Spirit's got to come in there and do his work. So I'm going to pray that he does that. Because what you need more than anything else is you need Christ's presence. You need him with you. Paul understood that the truth of the matter is that all of us, more than anything else, we need Jesus. When we have Jesus, we have everything. And when we don't have Jesus, we have nothing. And so that is why he was praying this, is so that they would experience Christ as much as possible. So we need to experience Christ's power and presence. That's the first thing that Paul prays for them to experience. And the second thing that Paul prays that they would experience is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And if you look at the second half of verse 17 down to 19, you can follow along with me. It says this, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and this, this is the part I want to focus on, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So Paul explains that these are really kind of in, in a progression. The result of experiencing Christ's power is experiencing his presence. And the result of experiencing his presence is experiencing his love in such a way that surpasses knowledge. And that is why he prays this. He prays that they would be strengthened to comprehend how wide, how long, and how high and deep the love of Christ is. He understands that it is larger than life, that it is inexhaustible. And he also understands that our default mode is not to believe and to sit under the love of Christ, but to doubt it and to think that it's that we're just beyond it. Our lives, our hearts are too jacked up and we can't really be loved that much. And so he asked them for strength to comprehend. Strength to comprehend. You know, I, I think that that is, is so true to life. You and I, if, if you're anything like me, is it's very easy to focus on your shortcomings and focus on all the things that are in you that you don't like. And while you do that, what happens is you begin to think, there's no way God really loves me. There's no way he can really love me. I mean, I know me, and he knows me this much and better. How can he love me? It takes strength. It takes a supernatural enabling to really sit under that and let that love stay on your mind, stay in your heart, and, and in a way that it is more than just some idea, but an experience. And so 
I love that Paul says that. He says it's, the, it's a love that surpasses knowledge. God's love is much more than an intellectual or theological concept. It is a treasure to be tasted. And it, in, in, in order to really appreciate it, we have to experience it. We have to drink it in. And throughout history, uh, there are countless examples. I came across a bunch this week. But throughout history, there are many, many, many people who have experienced God's love in a way that they would describe it was just overtaking them. And sometimes, you know, just they, they almost couldn't really, really bear it. It was like too powerful for them. It was, it was just so much. And a lot of times what's interesting is as you look at the experiences of these folks, it happened frequently not at the moment of coming to Christ, but even much later sometimes. And there are many, many folks, but I just want to share one. Some of you may be familiar with the name Blaise Pascal. He was the great French mathematician, and he was also a Christian philosopher. Well, Pascal, as the story goes, he sewed into the lining of his coat a diary entry of an experience that he had back in 1654 for two hours from 10.30 to 12.30 one night. And the way that Pascal describes it, he said he experienced the love of God as a fire. And he said he never forgot that moment. And the reason why he sewed the record of that event, that diary entry on the inside of his coat, is he wanted that to be near his heart because he never wanted to forget it. He wanted, it, was, it was a life-changing, defining moment in his life. And you know, nobody knew about it until he died. And then when they were going, you know, assessing him and looking at his clothes, they found it stitched there. And sometimes in life, God meets us and he comes and brings his love to us in ways like that, that is much deeper than just just simple knowledge, but it's, it's, it's an experience type of thing where it's almost impossible to really share the truth of it in words. It almost seems like you don't have words to communicate how God do, did that. And I, and I know in my own life, I, I remember a moment like that. I remember I was driving on 183 over in Dallas. This was five years ago in the summer of 2008. And after listening to a podcast of a sermon, I came to the conclusion that I had been living my life believing that God loved me, but that he didn't really like me. I had been living my life as knowing, okay, well, it's, it's theologically true that God loves me, but it was as if that truth was like way over there and I could point to it, but it wasn't something that I was living under and something that was cloaking me. And there on the side of 183 at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it was like the floodgates of heaven just impacted my heart with the love of God, and I had to pull over on the side of the road because I was sobbing and I couldn't even see. I had to literally stop my car and just cry and cry until I could kind of just clear my head and clear my eyes so that I could continue down the road. And that was the experience that Paul was praying for them, is that God's love would not be just a thought, but it would be something that they deeply, deeply knew, that they deeply experienced. So Paul prayed that they would experience Christ's power and presence. He prayed that they would experience the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
And then he moves in to the next thing and prays that the Ephesians would experience the love of Christ. Okay, sorry, I already read that. <laughs> um, the, the fullness of God. The fullness of God. So the, the, love of, uh, the power and presence of Christ, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and then he moves into the last thing, the fullness of God. Look at the last half of verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So once again, these are in progression. He prays that they would experience Christ's power, that that would lead to them experiencing his presence, that that would lead to them experiencing his love in a way that surpasses knowledge, and then, finally, that that would lead to them experiencing the fullness of God. Well, what is the fullness of God? The fullness of God is nothing less than the very presence, life, and power of God experiencing God himself. And so what I believe Paul is praying for them is that they would be like God, that they would be spiritually mature, that their character, their personhood would be so impacted by the work of Christ in their life that God himself would be evident in their lives. There's a story about a guy, this is, this is a story shared by J. Wilbur Chapman, I've never heard this name until this week, but he was a 19th century Presbyterian evangelist. And he used to tell a story, it's a true story, about a guy who after years of estrangement from his family had become so destitute, so dispirited, and so distraught that he was reduced to being a beggar. And one day, desperate for some help, he touched the shoulder of a man who was getting off of a train. I said, mister, can you spare a dime? And when the man turned around, the beggar was shocked to see that it was his own father. And he cried out to him, Father, do you know me? Do you recognize me? And with tears in his eyes, the father threw his arms around his son, and he said, at last, at last, I have finally found you. My son, I will give you a dime. I will give you everything that I have. It's all yours. See, Paul prayed for them to experience the fullness of God because he knows that like the Father in this story, we have a loving, heavenly Father who wants to give us much more than a dime. He wants to give us much more than some temporary thing that we're praying for, he wants to give us himself. He wants to come and be with us and be for us what only he can. And that is the result of experiencing Christ's power. When he works in your life and the Spirit cleans up shop, cleans up our hearts so that he can dwell there, that we can experience his presence. And then as we do that, we will experience his love. And as his love washes over us, we will be able to be with the Father in a way that is only possible after all of that. And so I believe that, that the third thing that Paul prays is that we would experience the fullness of God. And now I want to read the last couple of verses here. This is Paul's great doxology. This is really my favorite part of the whole passage. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able 
to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. So Paul's taught us how to approach God, and he's told us what we should ask from God. But I think the most important question that Paul addresses here is, why should we pray? Why does prayer make a difference? Why does it matter? And that answer is found in these verses. I think there's really two answers. And the first one, I believe, is probably the most important thing in this entire text. You and I should pray, and the reason why it matters is because we pray to a God that is able. We pray to a God that is supremely able. Now, if you look at verse 20, it says, Now to him who is able to do a few things that we sometimes think about or ask. No, it doesn't say that. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. It is to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. This verse is, is really, it's pretty terrible grammar, but it's pretty great theology. We should pray because God is able. And as it says here, God is able not just to do some of the things that we ask or think, but all of them. And he's able to do much, much, much more than anything we could ever come up with. And so what I see in this verse is I see God inviting us, beckoning us to invade his throne with the biggest things we can come up with, with the wildest dreams we can conjure, and to bring those into his presence, believing that he'll hear us, believing that he'll act, and then waiting and watching to see him show up in ways that are bigger than we would even think. God loves to do things. He loves to answer the prayers of his children, but not just in accordance with the request, but in, the accor in accordance with what? The power at work within us. God loves to answer our prayers with all the resources that he has, and primarily through the Spirit's work, the power of the Spirit inside of us. I think that there are a couple of things that, that I, that I want to point out here. There are two, two reasons why I think God is able. First of all, God is able because he is omnipotent. God is able because he's omnipotent, because he's all-powerful. And that's great, but there's another really, really good truth that helps us understand why God is able to answer prayers. God is also able to answer our prayers because he is good. He's omnipotent, and he is good. He's all-powerful, and he is loving. So he's not just capable of answering our prayers, he wants to answer them. He desires to answer them. So we don't have a God that's distant and, and careless, or just shut off from us, able to do anything but just not caring. We have a God who is able and also desperately wants to show up and do things and and meet our needs in such a way that can only be explained by his power. 
I remember a time in my life, I actually thought about it this week. Um, Lexi and I went to go see a movie on Tuesday night, and we went to a theater up in northwest Dallas, which happened to be the same theater that we went to go see a movie, I think it was probably the week before we got engaged. And uh, back in the summer of 2010, we went to this, this same theater to go see Despicable Me. And uh, I remember when we pulled up to the theater that night, I like was, was just sobbing, like not, not I don't know about sobbing, but like weeping. You're understanding a theme here, I'm a crier. But uh, I was just like filled with tears because of God's goodness. And Lexi was kind of like, I'm just talking to her about, man, I'm just so amazed with how God is so faithful and how he's so good and he loves to give us good gifts. And she had no idea why I was so happy, why I was so filled with joy and praise. Well, here's why. That summer, I desperately wanted to propose to Lexi because I really, really, really wanted to marry her. There was only one small problem. I didn't have any money. (laughs) I mean, like, no money. And so here I am. I'm in seminary. I'm broke. I don't even have any idea how I'm going to scrap together some funds to buy a ring. But I began praying, and I began talking to friends and talking to my, my parents. And I'm just like, you know, I just feel like God is really leading me to propose, but I don't have anything to propose with. And it was so crazy. In a matter of, like, weeks, and I mean, like, two or three weeks, I went from, like, I've got nothing, and I don't know where this is coming going to come from, to my mom graciously saying, you know, I've got the diamond from my first wedding ring that I want to give to you. And then from there, I'm placing an order for a custom ring to be designed and, and put together using that stone. And like literally probably two or three weeks later, I'm driving to Houston, or halfway to Houston, meeting my parents in like Centerville or somewhere at a barbecue shack, and like there's the ring in the box. And it's like, it hasn't even been a month, and I've gone from like, how am I going to get engaged to like, when am I going to get engaged? And the reason why I was reminded of that is when I was sitting in that parking lot that day before we went to go see that movie, I had that ring back in my closet. And and I saw I experienced a God who is able to answer prayer and loves to answer our prayer. Didn't plan on that. Um, you know, and that's, that's, that's just an ounce of what God is capable to do. Provide a way for me to propose to the love of my life is, is, is an ounce of what he's able to do. I mean, he is able to do all things. And what I believe we see in this text is that he loves to do amazing, powerful things for us. And that's the first reason why 
we should pray because God is able. But there's one more reason. And he says it here in verse 21. And that is, we should pray also because God is glorified in the church and in Christ. He is glorified in the church and in Christ. It says there in 21, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, God has chosen for our prayers to be a part of the way that he is glorified in this world. See, we have the opportunity to pray for these kinds of things and what happens when we pray for God to work and for his power to come and meet, meet us, for us to experience it, to experience his presence, his love, his fullness. As all of that happens, we're transformed and the church is able to really fully be the church. And as the church is the church, God is glorified. And also, it says there that he's glorified in Christ. Well, Christ is, has already glorified the Father through his life, death, and resurrection, but he also glorifies the Father in the way that he has purchased for the Father worshipers from all across the world. And our prayers are a way that God can make worshipers out of those who don't yet know him. We have an opportunity when we pray to see God use those prayers to bring people to Christ. And I think that's one more idea, one more reason why we should pray. I'm almost out of time here, and I want to just leave you with, with a few applications. These are straight out of the, everything we've already talked, talked about this morning, but they're just very specific concrete ways that I believe we can begin to pray in a way that is, is in accordance with what Paul prayed for the Ephesians, in a way that is tapping into the power of God. And the first one is this. I want to challenge you to pray with a posture of humility. To pray with a posture of humility. I've got two ideas for that. One of them is to, to pray with a posture of humility physically. So I want to challenge you to, to maybe get outside of your comfort zone a little bit. Maybe if you're the kind of person who typically sits when you pray, try getting on your knees this week and praying on your knees just to teach your heart with your body that God is worthy of all that you are and all that you have and that you are bowing before the king and creator of all. And then maybe if you're the person who already knees Maybe you want to take it a step further. Lay down, face down before the Lord. I don't know. This, this might be a way that God might be, you know, might, might interact with you and might transform you. Second, second idea is not just the physical side of this, but maybe you could try addressing God in a different way that might help you approach prayer with a little more humility. If you typically address God as Father, and that's not a bad thing, I want to be very clear. If you typically address him as Father, maybe this week try addressing him as Almighty God, King of creation. Something that kind of just kind of jostles you a little bit to think about just how big and how powerful he is. So pray with a posture of humility. The second thing, pray for power, for love, and spiritual maturity. And those are straight out of that. Pray for power to fight temptation, to say no to the flesh. Pray for love, a deep abiding experience of Christ's love. And pray for God to help you 
increasingly say yes to him so that he can make you like him, spiritually mature. The third thing is I encourage you to pray in faith. To pray in faith. Pray for things that you're normally timid to pray about. Test God. Bring some crazy, audacious, just, oh my gosh, I don't know if this is even possible, but here I am, I'm praying for it anyway. Pray in a way that it's like going to be just absolutely evident that God showed up this week. Test him. See what he can do. And fourth, pray that God would be glorified. Pray that he would be glorified in you. Pray that he would be glorified in his church. And pray that he would be glorified in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that you would strengthen all of us in our inner beings like Paul prayed for the Ephesians. I pray that Christ would make his home in our hearts through faith. I pray that you would give us the very faith that makes that possible. And as he takes up residence there, Father, we look forward to the transformation that will take place as he changes us so that we're more fit for him to dwell there. And would you reveal to us, God, would you bless us with an understanding and experience of how wide and how long and how high and how deep the love of Christ our Savior is. The love that surpasses knowledge. We want to experience that. We want to drink that in this week. And God, fill us with your fullness. Fill us with your very presence. May we just be bursting at the seams with your very character. And as we thank you, Father, we, we, we close with, with just thanking you that you are the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think because of the power that is at work within us, the very power of your spirit. Be glorified, Father, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.